You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Greetings, Canada's court listeners. My name is Scott Cowan, and I'm a criminal lawyer practicing in Ontario, Nunavut, and the Northwest Territories, and co-founder of DestinationCPD.com, an outfit that hosts the annual criminal law conference in Las Vegas every spring. It is my pleasure to bring to you this episode of Canada's Court, the oral hearing of the case of Ahmad Abdullahi versus His Majesty the King. In 2012, two young Somali men were murdered in what was perceived by police and the media to be street-level gang violence. Toronto Police led a joint forces operation, Project Traveler, which resulted in 55 arrests, mostly in Toronto's northwest. The appellant would eventually be convicted by a jury on firearms and criminal organization charges. At trial, the Crown led translations of wiretaps through an expert witness. The appellant objected to the translator being tendered as an expert, claiming his opinions were unreliable because there were significant frailties in his knowledge, training, and expertise as a Somali translator. The trial judge nevertheless qualified the translator as an expert and admitted the evidence. This would become significant, not just for the admissibility question of arguably dubious evidence, but also because the wiretaps were crucial to the criminal organization charge. While the wiretaps were arguably laden with details about the nature of the gang being prosecuted, they were based on conversations of people that did not include the appellant nor his co-accused. This would include references to coded language, hierarchies, and what the Crown would characterize as evidence of cohesiveness and continuity. The defense urged the jury to find that it was a ragtag, disorganized group that formed for the purpose of committing the isolated crime of moving guns from Windsor to Toronto a singular offense being specifically statutorily excluded from the definition of criminal organization in the code. Since the wires contained utterances by non-accused people that arguably contained boastful or conjectural statements, a complete and legally correct charge to the jury was critical to the accused persons receiving a fair trial. The Court of Appeal for Ontario unanimously dismissed the appellant's appeal relating to the Somali translations. The appellant also complained that the instructions to the jury on the definition of criminal organization were inadequate. This ground was likewise dismissed by the majority but held sway by Justice Pachaco in dissent. He found fault with the trial judge's failure to develop in his charge the requirement that the organization have structure and continuity. Leave was sought but denied on the translation issue, thus the case appears before the Supreme Court as an appeal as of right based on the dissent by Justice Pachaco on the question of law relating to the definition of a criminal organization. In the case of uh, Ahmed Abdullahi against His Majesty the King, for the appellant Ahmed Abdullahi, Alexander Ostroff, for the intervener, Criminal Lawyers Association of Ontario, Colleen McHugh, Emily Lamb, for the respondent, His Majesty the King, Cathy Doherty. Mr. Ostroff. Good morning. <clears throat> this case is about the need for juries to be instructed on all essential elements of offenses, including those not expressly set out in criminal code provisions, but which this court has found through interpretation of those laws. In this case, the definition of criminal organization. 
there was a particularly serious risk in this case that the jury could take an overbroad approach to the definition of criminal organization. There was limited, if any, evidence directly of criminal organization, no direct evidence or testimony of members of the alleged organization. There was only one substantive incident um, of firearms charges involving the appellant. And the Crown relied on the application of generic indicia of quote-unquote urban street gangs to establish a criminal organization's existence, which included things such as colors of clothing, hand signs or gestures and pictures, the use of common slang, the use of a shared language, Somali, or ties to the same neighborhood, which the Crown had characterized as the most important characteristic of the alleged criminal organization. Many of these were characteristics likely to be shared by people of similar age and ethnic or racial background from the same area or cultural milieu. The jury was invited to apply these indicia to voluminous wiretap evidence, only some of which included the appellant, and otherwise involved friends or acquaintances who were also of Somali ethnicity and lived in the same area, many of whom were also involved in criminal activity. However, none of these um, wiretaps involved discussions clearly indicating hierarchy, structure, direction, or other things that were core to the meaning of criminal organization. While such evidence might have been circumstantial evidence that could be considered along with other evidence to infer whether a criminal organization existed, there was a real danger that absent instructions that clearly conveyed that a criminal organization required the alleged group to have the degree of uh, a certain degree of structure and continuity um, as set out by this court in Venere, that the jurors would rely on those generic indicia of gang culture to conclude that the criminal organization existed, having never <clears throat> turned their minds to core elements of the offense. Mr. Ostroff, what, what you were talking about the absence of evidence. We'll talk about the, uh, what you call the absence of instructions after, but uh, about the absence of evidence. When we read the sentence reasons, and I know that the sentence reasons, of course, they were after the verdict, but when the judge uh, summarizes his understanding of the evidence when he gives his sentence reasons, and I'm referring to page 237 of the appellant record, he says a criminal organization existed from March 2013 to June 2013. Its core members were, and your client were one of the members, and your client was one of its principal members. He was its leader and was regarded as such by the other participants. And the judge goes on. What should we do with that? That evidence was heard by the members of the jury too, isn't it? I, I would submit that um, the evidence that the, the judge is citing there is the, the same evidence which I'm discussing. The judge, um, <clears throat> the jury had to find a degree of structure and continuity to the alleged criminal organization. And, um, and, and there was nothing in the wiretaps in which the appellant, with the exception of in relation to the substantive incident with which he was charged, um, directed or was involved directly with criminal activity committed by other people on the wiretaps. You know, I wonder if you're barking up the wrong tree here because... It isn't a question of an unreasonable verdict. It's a question of whether the 
jury was properly instructed. So it seems to me that even if there was ample evidence, aside from the curative proviso, even if there was ample evidence upon which a jury could properly have convicted, if the jury was not properly instructed, if they didn't apply the correct legal test, uh, then that kind of gets you to where you need to go, doesn't it? Yes, thank you, Justice Rowe. Also, um, at, without being trite, the, the trial judge's findings on sentencing were also made following the jury's verdict and, and in, uh, you know, with the need to be consistent with the jury's verdict, the jury having convicted the appellant of the criminal organization offense by that point. Um, so uh, in, in terms of sufficiency of of the evidence, the juries did still have to be properly instructed on what the elements of a criminal organization can, were can in I, order for, Mr. for the appellant. Mr. Ostroff, can I f- follow up on these two questions with, just so I understand your argument proper, if I could properly, if I could ask you to think about paragraph 21 in Go Forth, the last time this court has spoken to the adequacy of a charge, and understand whether you're arguing that Go Forth is mistaken or whether you're saying that a properly applied Go Forth would, would, uh, would result in a finding that the, the charge was inadequate. So paragraph 21 at Go Forth reminds us that trial judges are not held to a standard of perfection in crafting jury instructions. And this is the sentence that I'm interested in. Rather, an appellate court must take a functional approach when reviewing a jury charge by examining the alleged errors in the context of the evidence, the entire charge, and the trial as a whole. Is that a proper statement of the law? And is that, is, are you saying that that wasn't applied here? Or are you saying that actually that's n- not, not a proper statement of the law? Um, Justice Kassir, I agree that that's a proper statement of the law. I'm saying that in in this case, if properly applied, um, that the charge was not adequate. Um, I I agree that a standard of perfection is certainly not what's required, but I I would argue that um, in this case, there was non-direction on an essential element of the offense well, that on rendered the, on, the charge inadequate. Okay. On the heels of Justice Cote's question, is it unfair, and reading your factum, to think that actually what you're focusing on is the charge itself, and you're paying less attention to what's going on elsewhere, and here you see what amounts to a non-direction in the charge as as opposed to an argument based on a broader contextual view of the of the trial um i i don't think so justice kassir with respect because even in the broader context of what's going on in the trial um if something is a live issue if an essential element is a live issue the the jury needs to be at least instructed that they must find that essential element in order to convict on an offense. Um, it, it's my submission that th- this wasn't simply a circumstance where an essential element wasn't described in a way that the appellant might prefer or that something could have been phrased differently, but that rather something that this court has found um, 
to be part of the meaning of criminal organization and that subsequent decisions by appellate courts have repeatedly found to be an essential distinguishing feature of criminal organizations according to the meaning that we are supposed to understand the provision in the criminal code to have was simply not included or conveyed in the charge. So you say the charge wasn't functional because of non-direction on an essential element of the offense. And then you contrast that, well, with a situation where the essential element may not have been described in a way that a party liked, which tends to me to suggest misdirection. Is it your submission that non-direction is worse than misdirection? In some cases, yes. I think if a misdirection is, you know, directs the jury that an essential element is diametrically opposed to what it should have been, then that's obviously very serious. I'm simply saying in this case, it was, in this case, it was non-direction. And as such, the non-direction could not have been functional or adequate because there was no direction on it. On that point, how helpful is it to characterize something as misdirection or non-direction? Is that, obviously that's not the test. The test is whether there was adequate directions. But how helpful is it to go through the exercise of trying to characterize it as one or the other? So the only reason I think that I'm stressing that in this case is because it's non-direction on something that this court has interpreted through its jurisprudence on the meaning of a criminal code provision, but which in my submission wouldn't necessarily be evident strictly from the reading of the text of the criminal code provision by a jury of laypersons or even necessarily by a trial judge. Because essentially what happened in this case in terms of the direction in question is that the trial judge faithfully stated exactly what the words in section 467.1 of the criminal code are in terms of the definition of criminal organization. But in Venneri, this court found that the phrase, a group however organized, has a particular meaning and elaborated at length on that. And part of that meaning is that there must be some degree of structure and continuity. But Mr. Horscroft, on that point, I agree with you that the judge in his charge did not use the word structure. But as you say, he read the provision 467.1 of the code. And when somebody says, however organized, it relates to structure. Do you acknowledge that? I acknowledge, Justice Cote, that it relates to it in the sense that that is where the requirement, the interpretation of that requirement came from. But as, and if I can direct you to Venneri itself, you know, this required some interpretation by the court. In Venneri, it said, you know, at paragraph 30, qualifying organized in 467.1 by however cannot as a matter of language or logic be taken to signify that no element of organization is required at all. It necessarily connotes some form of structure and organization. And then it says, however unorganized the two words read together as they are written are complementary and not contradictory. 
thus the phrase however organized is meant to capture differently structured criminal organizations. But note that this was something that had to be clarified by this court because prior to that trial courts, including in many judge alone decisions that the court was referring to, took very different positions on the, the requisite degree of, of organization implied by those words. I'd say similarly, uh, you know, th there, are, there are other circumstances in the law where um, there are phrases in criminal code provisions that have had certain meanings interpreted to them by this court, and it is uh, now accepted that judges must instruct the juries not simply by reading the text of the criminal code. Um, for example, uh, Section 231.5 of the criminal code um, for constructive first-degree murder doesn't expressly say anywhere in there um, that an accused must have been um, an essential, substantial, and integral cause or have actively participated in the killing in order to be convicted. That requirement comes from this court's interpretation of, um, one minute, let me pull up the, of the phrase, um, uh, when the death is caused by that person. Now, if a trial judge simply read the provision in 231.5, that would be an accurate statement of the law, and yet we still require judges when um, active participation is a live issue in, in a constructive first-degree murder case to instruct juries that that is an essential element of the offense because there are circumstances where, as a result of jurisprudence, um, this court has found that, that the meaning of criminal code provisions include things that are essential features of those provisions, essential elements of those offenses that would not necessarily be clearly and, and adequately communicated to the jury um, simply by, by reading the strict text of the provision because it, it's been interpreted and inferred from, from the, the words that may not be obvious to a jury of laypersons on their face. And, 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 and that's why I was um, suggesting that non-direction um, is, is uh, I guess, a relevant consideration in this case because non-direction on, um, on that interpretation deprived the jury of uh, the ability to be adequately equipped to know um, how to apply the text of that criminal code provision to the evidence that was before them. Question regarding what is said in the code and uh, what was said in Venery. So do you agree that the requirement of continuity discussed in Venery uh, comes from uh, the paragraph in 467.1 to the effect that it should not, it, it does not include uh, a group uh, formed randomly for the immediate commission of an offense. Um, I believe that's correct, yes. Mr. Ostroff, I'm gonna br I'd like to bring you back to the Justice Cote's first question and 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 the and and the relevance of your position in respect of this court's jurisprudence and go forth. So, mm -hmm. what's the difference between what you describe here as the non-direction in this case and the would you call it a misdirection in go forth? 
And are, would you suggest you think it's, there's a path between your position here and the majority position in Goforth on the, on the charge that was in play in that case as against the charge in play here? I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, because the details of the facts that go forth aren't my strict expertise, but I, I think go forth. It's about the whether the instructions functionally conveyed. Well, you had five misdirections and one, one correct direction on the same topic. That's what you had in go forth. So take it from there. Right. It, but it was also about the adequacy of, of uh, with respect to the marked departure standard. So I'm just trying to. Maybe I can. I just, maybe I can frame I, I, it. In, I, I, I let think me so. frame perfect, it in the perfect, abstract. Perfect. Sorry. Let me let me frame my question in the abstract. You've got a charge that has a correct direction on an essential element in the wrong place of the judgment, obscured by the by or marred by some some uh, misstatements as to what what the law is, and the jury was left according to the dissent, to cobble together a proper charge. But according to the majority, it was but, fine. So what do you do with that? But according to the majority, you, re relying on the, the contextual approach we spoke of earlier, um, there was enough there. And I want you to compare that to your case and explain what the difference is. Okay. Um. So uh, assuming that, that this court doesn't decide that go forth was wrong in its application of its own test, I, I think there are a few distinctions. One um, is, is that here there was no correct instruction at all, rather than a mix of correct and incorrect ones. Um, and second, I suppose, in terms of the, the context that um, could or could not render it adequate or inadequate. Um, I, I would submit in this case, uh, the, the context simply isn't there. Um, there. This was a legal instruction. The jury was told that they had to take their legal instructions from the judge. But even if one goes to submissions by the parties, as suggested by the majority of the Court of Appeal for Ontario, um, the defense expressly told the jury that structure and continuity were required. The Crown presented a definition of criminal organization that made no mention of those requirements. There were some, uh, I, I guess, passing references in, in their arguments about evidence where they said that, you know, this gang was cohesive or, or things to that nature. But the Crown never uh, suggested, stated, indicated to the jury that those things were essential features that were necessary in order for the finding to be made. And so um, 
in that context where the defense is accurately stating a legal requirement, the judge is silent on it, and the Crown um, provides a definition of criminal organization that doesn't include it, um, you can't cobble together from the well, context. If it, even if it were possible to cobble together in some circumstances, this isn't one where it's possible. It w would be my submission. Sorry, uh, Justice Karakas. No, yes, I, I just have you finished your answer on that? Okay. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about um, the need to charge the jury on a live issue. Um, in this case, you're saying it's a live issue. Um, it needed to be charged. What if there had been agreement? Everybody in the trial had agreed that, not formal admission, but there had been no live issue that this was a criminal organization. Or maybe let's talk about a hypothetical case. So there's a hypothetical case where there's really no live issue that it's a criminal organization, but it's still an element of the, of, of the offense. Is the judge required to charge the jury about every element of the offense, even where it is not a live issue? Does there have to be at least a passing reference? Uh, um, you know, there's no dispute. Here's, a, here's the issue. There appears to be no dispute about it. That's my question to you. Just to clarify, um, are we strictly talking about circumstances where, you know, for example, the judge would say uh, the accused must have caused the death of the uh, of the deceased. I'm there's no dispute on the evidence, or or is it that there's no dispute about the definition, i.e., just that the parties agree that structure and continuity are essential features, but not whether there was structure and continuity. Well, what if there was a case where the issue of structure and continuity was just not relevant because it was so obvious? Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. Sorry. So, so that's uh, that's what I wanted to clarify. But I, I would say, if everyone agrees that structure and continuity are necessary features, but but not about whether they existed, then an instruction is absolutely necessary. If everyone agrees that structure and continuity were essential elements, but everyone agrees that they were present, um, I think that may be closer to the circumstances where there can be a, a, a cobbling together where, where it's, there's not um, as significant an import. Well, I, uh, I would have thought it's for the jury to decide. Um, I, I would say, uh, of course, it's always for the jury to decide. But in, I guess simply in terms of, and I mean, maybe this would be a more of a question in terms of application of the Proviso right. in a circumstance where, right. yeah. where, um, where there's non-direction on an essential element of the offense. However, so so it it's still an error, issue. but 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 it's still an error, but it might be curable. Almost certainly, if everyone, if you know, right. it, you know, if if everyone agreed that that death was caused by someone shooting someone, it may have technically been an error not to say. It's required that death be caused, but it all comes out in the wash. So your answer is that if it is an essential element, there must be an instruction on it uh, and a failure to do so where everybody agrees is a proviso issue. Use the cause death example. Uh, yeah, I'm just thinking. Uh, I mean, I, I, 
I'm just talking at a conceptual level here. Uh, no, no, I, I, I understand, and that's why I'm... Yes, I, I think so, but, but again... Right. I mean, the, the trier of fact the, the, has to decide that all the elements are made out. Y- Ergo, yes. they need to be yeah. instructed on the essential elements. But if yeah, everyone's yes. agreed that the person died, then maybe the curative proviso is available. Yes, yeah, that would okay. be my position. Right. But, but, but again, it's our position in this case that it, it was a live issue. It was a live issue as, as stated by the defense, both in their closing and prior to the closings. During the pre-charge conference, counsel were, were asked to submit their positions in writing to, to the judge. And um, I, I believe I've included that in my condensed book in there when setting out the essential features of criminal organization, defense counsel set out three things. The, the first paragraph of 467.1 of the criminal code, the group of three or more people. The second paragraph, the, the part that uh, I believe Justice Cote referred to about it not being a group that forms randomly. And then separately, a specific citation to the structure and continuity requirement from Veneri. So, um, you know, at, at least in terms of deciding this case, um, I, I think it's it's very clearly something that was a live issue that, that was in dispute and, and litigated. It was like in Beauchamp, for instance, that uh, this determination of is there a criminal organization or not uh, has to be very flexible. Certainly, but the the flexibility is, as discussed in Veneri, the idea that. Uh, what, what makes it flexible is that um, uh, there's a specific paragraph in Venere about this. Um, it's about avoiding rigidity, and it's about ensuring that um, that there isn't a um, you know a, a set checklist of of characteristics or attributes that must be satisfied in every case. That it doesn't conform to stereotypical models. But structure and continuity aren't. Uh, you know, a, a checklist that, that is unduly rigid. They're, uh, the structure and continuity are essential elements that have been found to be necessary by Venere. It's simply that there, that there isn't a, uh, you know, it must look like this, people must take on these roles, it must be organized in this fashion. You know, th- that's not required. But, um, but not requiring that kind of a checklist and avoiding stereotypical ideas about what a criminal organization looks like um, doesn't require such flexibility as to abandon um, uh, the need for structure and continuity altogether in, in my submission. Can I ask you just a question? Um, is your is your client uh, in custody um, based on this particular charge, the criminal organization charge, or is, are the other sentences still uh, running? I thought they were going to end in July of 2020. None. none. So, so my client is out of custody. Um, at, this is an odd circumstance where at the Court of Appeal, um, the majority dismissed the conviction appeal and Justice Pochaco dissented, but um, we won the sentence appeal, which resulted in his sentence being shortened. So my client is currently um, out of custody post-stat release, but still on the parole in the 
period after the not yet warrant expiry, but but after statutory release. Well, the the other charges I think would have finished July twenty two, so he's out because of statutory release. I understand. Yes. Yeah. On this charge. Yes. Anything else? Um, barring any further questions, um, I, I've included the materials I referred to in my condensed book, including the, um, the specific excerpts of, of what the Crown and the Defense um, provided as definitions. Um, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Colin McCune. Thank you. As this court said in an Avetisan over 20 years ago, there is a long established rule that the trial judge instructs the jury on questions of law. While counsel's errors can be corrected by the trial judge in their charge, the opposite is not true. That is, the trial judge's errors cannot be corrected by counsel. On behalf of the Criminal Lawyers Association and my co-counsel, Ms. Emily Lamb, I'll be making two submissions arising out of the disagreement in the court below both of which relate to this long-established rule. First, the trial judge must instruct the jury that criminal organizations have both some form of structure and degree of continuity. And second, when considering the adequacy of a jury charge in context, appellate courts cannot use counsel's closing addresses to cure deficiencies in the trial judge's legal instructions. First, we respectfully ask this court to confirm its comments in Venere that structure and continuity are essential components of the definition of a criminal organization, and the jury should be told so. While this court made clear in Venere that criminal organizations do not need to fit a particular mold, it is also, the court also made clear that criminal organizations must have some form of structure and degree of continuity. Now, we don't take the position that there's any uh, magic to the word structure or the word continuity. This court has repeatedly said that it's the substance of the charge, not any particular incantation that matters. However, we do take the position that these essential features of the definition must be conveyed, as they are essential elements of the offense, which came up in uh, the questions asked of my friend. We submit that there are three key reasons why juries should be instructed that criminal organizations must have both structure and continuity. First, and again, this was raised uh, in the court's questions, the statutory language itself is not enough. We know from Venere that before the definition of criminal organization was interpreted in that case, some courts interpreted the statutory definition alone as requiring very little or no organization at all. And that's at paragraph 27 of Venere. Juries could draw the same conclusion from the statutory words alone without further instruction. Second, these elements are required to engage the exceptional regime Parliament established for offenses committed by and for criminal organizations. It's these components, these features, that distinguish criminal organizations from other ad hoc groups, and this is what justifies the stiffer penalties and stigma that come with these charges. And third, clear instructions prevent juries from filling the gaps with their own conclusions about what features define criminal organizations. Where little guidance is given, these conclusions are more likely to be based on impermissible reasoning, such as conscious or unconscious biases. 
Our second submission focuses on the role closing addresses play in an appellate court's assessment of a jury charge's adequacy. Our concern arises out of paragraphs 75 to 79 of the decision below. In these paragraphs, the majority first says that the jury charge must be read in light of counsel's closing addresses. We don't take issue with this as a general proposition. However, the majority goes on to highlight particular passages in both counsel's addresses that cover the legal principle that the appellant said was missing from the jury's charge, judge's charge. And in paragraph 79, the majority writes that it was clear there was no dispute between the parties that to constitute a criminal organization, the group had to have cohesiveness, the crown, or structure, defense counsel, and continuity of enterprise as put by the crown. So this is part of what the, the judge, uh, the appellate uh, majority is looking at when looking at charge adequacy. And I submit that this court got it right in Avetisan and should reaffirm that counsel's accurate description of a particular legal principle will not correct the trial judge's failure to, uh, to provide an accurate instruction. So when Justice Pachioco says at paragraph 147 of his reasons and uh, also 144 that uh, closing submissions of the parties may be relevant to the sufficiency of the, of the charge, do you agree or you do not agree? We agree that they may be relevant in some circumstances. And in our factum, we lay out uh, jurisprudence from this court in which uh, the court did consider these elements uh, or did consider counsel's submissions to be relevant. For example, in helping to define what a live issue is at trial uh, or um, in ensuring that the jury didn't go down an improper reasoning path because no one invited the jury down that path. And so there is some relevance, and this is set out in our factum, but it's our submission that counsel's, uh, counsel's closing addresses cannot be used to cure legal deficiencies in particular. And I see my time uh, is up, so thank you very much. Thank you very much. Cathy Doherty. Good morning, Chief Justice, <clears throat> Justices. Uh, this appeal in my submission turns on a discrete question. Were the criminal organization instructions Justice Trafford provided this jury in this case sufficient? In my submission, the answer to that question is yes. The majority of the Court of Appeal for Ontario got it right, and the appeal should be dismissed. Justice Brown, for the majority, followed the analytical approach set out in this court's jurisprudence. He did not simply examine whether the charge included a line that set out there must be continuity and structure to a criminal organization, because that express language is not found in this charge. But that's not the end of things in my submission or on Justice Brown's analysis. Justice Brown properly assessed what the trial judge did say within the context of the entirety of the charge and the context of the overall proceedings. Viewed from that proper perspective, he was not satisfied that the instructions were deficient. And this court should not, in my respectful submission, disturb that conclusion. In my submissions this morning, I want to start by highlighting a couple of the well-settled uh, principles of appellate review of jury instructions that I say guide uh, the disposition of this appeal. Uh, second, I'll turn to Justice Brown's application of those principles uh, to this present case and outline why I say the majority taking the proper contextual assessment of Justice Trafford's instructions properly determined that the trial judge committed no uh, reversible error. 
so in my submission, Justices, the assessment of this appeal starts with a consideration of the applicable principles of appellate review. Uh, those are well-established, well-trod principles that have emerged from this court. Justice Brown summarizes them at paragraph 61 of the majority. I, I won't repeat that review. But in my submission, two points in, in particular are significant in assessing my friend's complaints. Uh, the first is the need to assess the sufficiency of the instructions given within the context in which they were given, not in the abstract. And that's central in my submission because it, it relates to the ability of the instructions to serve their purpose of equipping this particular jury with the tools they needed to decide the case. The second principle to keep front of mind in my submission in assessing this appeal uh, is the need for the functional assessment of uh, the instructions that were provided. Now, Justice Kassir has sort of stolen, stolen my thunder on this, on this point with his questions about go forth already. Uh, it's trite to say that instructions are not judged against a standard of perfection. Appellate review of jury instructions uh, must ensure that juries are properly, not perfectly instructed. Okay, but what about a non-instruction on an essential element of the offense? In my submission, uh, to pick up on the discussion that was going on already, Justice Brown, about misdirection, non-direction, I'm not sure how much the label really assists in general because there could be situations where, you know, the jury's not told for first-degree murder you need to be satisfied. There's planning and deliberation, for example, if that's the Crown's argument. Right. And that would be sort of one kind of non-direction. But here, where the judge has instructed them on this element of what constitutes a criminal organization. And my friend says, based on this court's jurisprudence, jurisprudence further express language was required. My submission, that's a sufficiency. Well, how do you say the judge instructed them on this particular essential element that we're talking about? Sure. So I, I'm happy to take you exactly to that point, Justice Brown. Um, when you look at the sort of elements of the context that uh, Justice other Justice Brown, Court of Appeal Justice Brown, looked at in assessing uh, the instructions that were provided here. He looks at really three elements that he says supports the, the uh, sufficiency of the jury's instructions on this point. He refers to the evidence that the jury uh, heard that addressed considerations of structure, continuity, and coordination in, uh, uh, in the alleged group. But, but I'm, I'm going to kind of put the flip over the point I made to your friend, and that is telling us that there was ample evidence upon which the jury could have entered a conviction doesn't really solve the problem, does it? Because it's a question of what is the yardstick. And if the yardstick or the, the meter stick or the whatever is, is, is not properly described, um, the jury isn't isn't doing its job, even if there's ample evidence upon which they could have reached that conclusion. I certainly agree, Justice Rowe, that a, a consideration of whether a, a conclusion or a verdict was available or reasonable is separate and distinct from the question of whether the instructions the jury received on that point were sufficient. But as I read Court of Appeal Justice Brown's uh, majority reasons, what I 
take from that is he is looking at the context in which the jury would have heard the particular words that my friend says were insufficient. But can I and just... the first part... Oh, sorry. No, sorry. sorry just you finish, finish your answer and then I will <laughs> I was just going to say that uh, this, this sort of looking at the evidence is this first kind of category of context that Justice Brown is looking at to say, okay, how, when the jury is, is hearing those words from Justice Trafford, how, how are they likely to interpret it? And the first sort of body of, of material he looks at is the evidence that they heard on this point of uh, the criminal organization and what makes something a criminal organization. And I'm sorry for speaking over you again, Justice no, Brown. No, no. I, I think I'm going to ask the same question that Justice Rowe did, but differently. If there's ample evidence that suggests something is a live issue, doesn't that make it more important that the judge actually provide guidance on how to apply that legal yardstick to that evidence? So in my submission, he, he is providing guidance here, Justice Krakatsanis, and what he said has to be interpreted or understood in the context in which it was given. And that context firstly includes the evidence that they heard, both from uh, the expert with respect to urban gangs and with respect to uh, the evidence that uh, the appellant was referred to. There's a circularity to that, isn't there, though? We have to, we, you know, what is the jury to do with that evidence? Well, we'd look at what the trial judge did and said about the evidence in the context of the evidence. Um, so we're just kind of back to the evidence again. Isn't it really that the jury needs to be told what to do with this evidence? What does it relate to? And, and to go back to the yardstick metaphor, mm-hmm. um, against what are they measuring it? So in my submission, it's put on the table to the jury from even during the evidentiary portion of this trial that uh, criminal organizations have certain characteristics and they can look different ways. And they've heard evidence both in general and with respect to you know, the hierarchical nickname that this appellant went by of head or HNIC. In addition to that, the jury also had uh, the submissions that and the positions that the parties took before uh, them and also as summarized in the trial judge's uh, charge to the jury. And in my submission, it's not, it's not accurate to describe considering the positions of the parties as downloading the trial judge's obligation to legally instruct the jury onto the parties. It's looking at the words that Justice Trafford said and how they would be interpreted by this jury. In my submission, this jury is, is, has, a, has a stark factual, determin- or a factual distinction or factual determination to make on this point. Yeah, They're but presented but with, actually, oh, I'm, I'm going to put it to you that this, the, the point that was dealt with in Veneri is, is not one that would ordinarily be obvious to uh, a jury because uh, it's the difference between, for example, a conspiracy, the difference between a conspiracy and uh, a a criminal organization is something that uh, I had to read it and sort of say, oh, yes, okay, now I understand the distinction. If you have, for example, a joint venture, I'll call it a joint venture, a criminal enterprise, but it's just for a single uh, offense. And there's no ongoing uh, uh, structure or organization versus you have an enterprise, right? We're in the business of running guns, for example. This is what we do for a living. Mm -hmm. We make a good living at it, thank you. 
But um, so after I'd read it, I got the difference between a conspiracy and and being involved in a criminal organization. That would in no way be uh, obvious or clear to a layperson, right? So in my submission, Justice Rowe, they're told it can't be formed randomly. They're told it can't be formed in relation to a particular criminal offense. And they're presented by two you know, starkly different positions from the parties. The Crown, who said, you know, it falls to this jury to ultimately determine, you know, was there, as alleged by the Crown, a criminal organization consisting of seven core members, one of whom was the appellant, whose aim was to traffic arms between Windsor and Toronto, with a territory, a language, you know, different people performing different uh, tasks within the organization in a coordinated effort uh, as a cohesive, continuous enterprise? Or, as the defense argued, was this merely a randomly formed group put together to commit this single offense? You know, there's a false binary there, isn't there, though? Right between randomness and and the degree and structure and continuity and coordination, right? Just just because something isn't random, right? A group isn't randomly formed doesn't mean that it meets that requirement of structure and continuity and coordination. They are on extreme ends of a of of a spectrum somewhere on which also fits criminal conspiracy. That's well, that's the problem. Told, oh, that's the problem. That rand, randomness, you know, that that they're told that it, it that it cannot be random, doesn't get them to where they need to be. It seems to me. In my just just to add on to that, when, when when the use of the word randomness seems to suggest something like these guys were hanging out together, they drank too much, somebody had this stupid idea, and they went out and you know committed an offense, and which is. It, Clearly, what was involved here was not something of that nature, but there's, to pick up on Justice Brown's point, forgive me for interrupting here, it, there, there is a bit of a, a continuum. It's the, the, the guys getting liquored up on a Friday night and doing something really dumb and criminal. Then there's the conspiracy for sort of a single transaction or whatever. And then there's we're in the business, guys. And you've got to be in the business to be convicted of being in a criminal organization, and the want of clarity along that continuum, I guess, is the concern that Justice Brown and I are both indicating. Sure, and, and I, I don't take it to be a binary either, to sort of start with what you were saying, Justice Brown. I mean, because they're also told if you just can't tell kind of what's going on with this group, then that's its own pathway to acquittal as well, right? And Justice Rowe, in terms of what this jury is told, they're told it can't be random, and they're told it can't be for a single offense. In my submission, Parliament, in, his, in its wisdom, has, has chosen this randomness word in, in a you know, smart way because it, it can sort of connote different, different sort of features that may or may not be at play in a particular case. You know, random can speak to something that's you know, slapped together, that's you know, here one minute, gone the next, or has no kind of pre-thought, or is you know, uh, it can have sort of different different connotations. So my submission, uh, instructing the jury in that language, in the context where they're presented with these two different positions of the parties, it's, it's fair for the Court of Appeal majority to have assessed what the jury would have taken from the words that were provided 
in that context. But, and so that's it, not, but there's a very big difference between saying what something is not and saying what it is. So I'll just make that comment. But you're talking about how the jury would be likely to interpret a statutory phrase that's part of the definition of criminal organization, which is a group however organized, and then we have these statements of, of what it isn't. But why shouldn't the jury be told what the Supreme Court has said? about that. It's not how the jury's likely to do it. It's, it's what was said in Venere. And, and so I, I'd like you to answer that, but I'd also like to go to this point and, and ask you this as well. I, I sense the tension uh, as to whether or not there is a net recognition in your submissions and in the um, Court of Appeal <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that the some form of structure and degree of continuity is in fact um, an essential part of the definition now. There's some fudging, I think, that goes on a little bit with all the balance struck between flexibility. But if that is, if the proper reading of Venere is that some form of structure and degree of continuity is, is, is embedded into a group, however organized, isn't it a constituent element and shouldn't the jury not be left to see how they would likely interpret it, but how the court has interpreted it? So, I, I mean, I think I have two responses, Justice um, Martin. The first is, you know, it, it's, there is no reason why this jury couldn't have been given, you know, a quote from Justice Fish and Venary. But that's why I started my submissions with sort of, we've, the court in my submission has to be disciplined within that those principles of appellate review of jury instructions, because the question is not, well, couldn't that have been there? Or wouldn't it have been better if this was there? The question is, what's wrong with what is there? And in my submission, when the Court of Appeal majority takes that proper contextual approach and says, look, you know, in, in another case, maybe this wouldn't have been enough. But in light of the evidence this jury heard, in light of the positions, you know, starkly, starkly different positions that were put to this jury by the parties, and in light of the fact that nobody had any problem with this instruction going to the jury at the end of the day, in the majority's view, this was not such a deficient instruction as to amount to uh, reversible error by the trial judge. So, so in my submission, oh, pardon me. No, go ahead. I have a question afterwards. No, I, no of course. I, 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 I want to follow up, though. But do you read Venary to say that uh, some form of structure and degree of continuity are now part of the definition of a group, however organized? That's how Venary interpreted the, this, the wording of the section, Justice Martin. And I don't take Court of Appeal Justice Brown to have said anything that's, in, that's inconsistent with that. He no, but there's a focus on flexibility as opposed to the definition itself. I, and I, in my submission, that emerges from the particular facts of this case, where we're dealing with a group that is not, you know, uh, 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 you know, Italian mafia that you're going to see in a movie or something, or an organized crime group that, you know, has well-known insignia that have kind of been part of our justice system for years. This is a group of a different kind. And that's why you know, the jury hears expert evidence to educate them on sort of the characteristics of those kinds of groups. And it's left the jury to decide whether the evidence called satisfies them or makes that out in these particular circumstances. So if we find that the essential elements um, should have been added to the direction, do you think that a curative proviso could apply in this case? 
Well, my submission, it ends up being the same argument in terms of the, while it would have been preferable for that express language to be there on, on if, the, if the reason goes that way, it ends up being a, can, do you get there sort of by implication by what was provided? But and was, my, it, uh, was it raised at the Court of Appeal? In terms of the proviso? No, because I made the same argument that I made to you now, Chief Justice, in terms of why the instructions themselves were sufficient uh, when you take them contextually and not sort of focus on the presence or absence of that particular language from Veneri. So, you're, get so I just want to make sure I get this right. So no matter what you say, even if we find that they were deficient, the evidence was there and the curative proviso should apply. The instructions in my submission as a whole made it clear to the jury how they had to assess that criminal organization. Okay, is this the first time you've made that submission on the curative proviso? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm answering your question about the curative okay, proviso. Okay, all right, I just want to make clear because the other side hasn't had a chance to argue the curative proviso. I totally understand that, okay. sir. I'm just answering the questions from the court. No, that's fair enough. All right, so not formally raised at the Court of Appeal, not formally part of this appeal. No, because my Thank position you. is that they're applying this court's jurisprudence, okay. you end up on that functional approach, concluding, as the majority in the Court of Appeal did, that these instructions, read as a whole, were sufficient. Can I ask you to get, to go back to where you started? Okay. And you've just, you've just made, made the point, but I want to get clear your reading of what the court, majority of the Court of Appeal said about functional adequacy. Mm-hmm. Um, in, specifically, we've heard a lot of criticism from the appellant and and and, and questions from uh, from colleagues here about um, about deficiencies in the charge. Sure. Is, and we see that Justice Brown, for the majority, um, at paragraph seventy-two, announces that he he's going to look at the context as a whole. And then he goes on, he looks at the evidence as a whole, 73, 74, the closing submissions, 75, 76, the lack of objections, uh, objection 80, 81. Is your view, Ms. Doherty, of this case, this is a case where there is a problematic charge that is, I don't want to say saved by context, but where those deficiencies are made up for by context, that the majority of the Court of Appeal was rendering a context judgment? Or is, this, or is it your view that, no, the, the char- because you've defended some of the criticisms that have been levied against the charge itself, is your sense that, no, the, the charge stands on its own, um, uh, but it's buttressed if so, in some measure by these contextual points? Which is your view of the, what the Court of Appeal did in the majority? Justice Kassir, I'm not sure if there's much practical difference at the end of the day between either of those options, because, you know, in a situation where you have some kind of express language that, you know, particularly responds to, you know, my friend's argument, then maybe we don't, we don't even end up in the Court of Appeal, let alone here. So in my submission, it's not sort of a lesser a lesser charge when you when you're looking at it contextually or it's it's saving otherwise what would be a problem because at the end of the day the focus has to stay on that functional approach i understand my, and, oh, yeah. pardon me no you, you uh, make a very good point and i understand it but i'm thinking about the direction that our court must give to intermediate appellate courts who are 
undertaking this functional mm-hmm. functional read and the balance that they make between the charge taken on its own and when they allow co- these contextual points to a greater or lesser extent to make up for deficiencies that they might see in the charge. In my submission, Justice Kassir, Justice Brown's uh, approach in this case is, is exactly what this court has told intermediate appellate courts to be doing. And in, in my submission, it's, it's an appropriate and, and just approach to be taking to the assessment of these uh, instructions, because our focus is not, can we years later find a problem with what was given? It's was the jury equipped with the tools they needed in this case to decide this case properly? So in my submission, uh, the, this court's jurisprudence provides that guidance. And whether or not, you know, a particular deficiency is going to be overcome by other aspects of the charge, I mean, that's going to be your factual case-by-case assessment that the Court of Appeal is is going to have to make in any given case. You know, you may have one you know, very small, but very powerful, you know, slip of the tongue that ends up saying, look, that's in the context of this case, that can't be overcome by whatever else was said. Versus in other cases, maybe go forth as an example where you maybe have a few different areas that can be highlighted as problematic. But at the end of the day, taking everything together, you're the court's not satisfied that the jury in that particular case was confused or misdirected. That takes me through uh, Justice Brown and the Court of Appeals' uh, ultimate conclusions with respect to the sufficiency of the instructions that were provided here. So my submission, Justice, is this court should dismiss the appeal and adopt the reasoning of Justice Brown. Subject to any questions, Justices, those would be my submissions. Thank you very much. Any reply, Mr. Ostroff? Is the video on now? Yes. Um, sorry, Justices, I was just having some issues with my video. Um, yes, just, just very briefly. Um, <clears throat> so um, my friend uh, suggested that part of what renders the charge adequate is that during the evidence portion, there are different features of structure and continuity um, put to them. And, and also the judge related the reviewed and related evidence that, that was relevant to this. I, I'd just like to... Uh, emphasize that much of that evidence in question were those indicia of, you know, supposed indicia of urban street gangs put forward by um, a, a police officer. And I, it, it seems important to me that the task for the jury was not to determine whether or not <clears throat> something existed that qualified uh, as, you know, the Toronto police understanding of uh, what they call an urban street gang based on, um, you know, clothing, hand signs, common slang, committing criminal activity in a particular neighborhood. That's not um, the test for criminal organization. The the test for criminal organization is what's set out in the criminal code as enhanced or elaborated on by this court and jurisprudence. Um, All of that stuff could uh, you know, inform and be a basis from which to draw inferences about the existence of, of an organization with sufficient structure and continuity, but without being instructed and, and without 
understanding that that was what they had to consider, um, the, um, I, I guess, criteria and, and evidence that the jury was being focused on um, was not, you know, one-to-one -one aligned with the legal issues they had to consider. Um, and, and similarly, in terms of the, I, I guess, continuum issue that, that came up um, in, in the back and forth during my friend's submissions, um, I, I'd just like to highlight um, kind of a, a further middle ground. There's the completely random um, position the, on one end. There's the highly structured traditional mafia-type organization on the other. Um, and then perhaps a, a, a looser and more flexible but still criminal organization slightly further in than that. But then there's also... Um, people who are all involved in similar criminal lifestyles, who know each other through their criminal activity, perhaps, or through living in the same area, and who may occasionally cooperate on ad hoc basis for individual criminal activity, um, but not on a continuous basis, who sometimes operate in competition with one another, who may work together sometimes and not others. And, and that's something that a jury would need to parse out. Perhaps, um, and, and perhaps, and perhaps Mr. Ostroff, maybe one way of looking at this is to say it's the uh, degree of obviousness of the point for which there was a non-direction. Uh, if it's a term of art for which there is a non-direction, as it is in the, in the context of a criminal organization, then, the, then you know, submissions and evidence won't make up for the point. But if, the, if it is a more obvious point that the jury may be able to glean from the submissions or the evidence, then perhaps uh, the functional approach would be made out. So it really comes back to the degree of obviousness of the point for which there's no bright line rule that, you know, uh, not addressing the point, going back to Ms. Doherty's last uh, response, but it's the degree of obviousness of the point for which there is uh, a non-direction and uh, whether or not it can be, it's a term of art. And if it's a term of art, as Justice Rowe said, that even judges of misconstrued, then that becomes a different kettle of fish. Certainly. I, I, I think perhaps this was my attempt to address part of the curative proviso issue, just to emphasize that, you know, on the evidence, there, there were things existing in this middle ground. There was evidence, including on wiretaps, that were even advanced by the Crown as, as part of their evidence on the substantive offenses, that people who the Crown said were part of the same alleged criminal organization, nonetheless, were working with different people, sometimes across purposes and so on and so forth. And so the suggestion that, you know, that this was something that was so clear cut as to uh, not require direction um, is, is just something that I would take um, issue with. Um, and... Uh, that and, and this can get my reply. And this can get kind of tricky because, thinking of the Godfather movie, Hyman Roth <clears throat> and Vito Corleone used to run rum. They each had their own criminal organization, but for the purposes of the transactions of running the rum across the border, were they involved in a criminal organization as between themselves? I mean, it can get a little technical. Yes, um, <laughs> certainly. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, so thank you very I'd, much. Like, I'd like to thank counsel for uh, your submissions. The court will take this case under advisement. And the court is adjourned until tomorrow morning, 9.30. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.